Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and this week we are going to be talking about drafting blue-green in Crimson Vow. I've been discussing a lot of blue archetypes, you may have noticed, because I keep drafting blue, not by design, just because I think other people are trying pretty hard to avoid blue, and I think that I've found ways to draft it that I'm comfortable with, so... I don't try to avoid it, so I end up there a lot, so I feel more comfortable discussing it than the other archetypes, just because I'm below a huge portion of the time that I draft that format, uh, or this format. So I'm not really trying to argue that blue is good or better or where you should be, just that it's not bad, and I think it's, I guess, underrated in my experience at least. That said, I do think that other people are avoiding it for real reasons. And I think in the case of blue-green, some of that has to do with people not drafting blue-green correctly and then being less successful with it. So for anyone who wants to follow along, (laughs) just a reminder, the notes for this podcast have been posted so um, if you are a uh, limited guru patron of uh, Drafting Archetypes on patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, you can follow along. There you'll see um, what I'm about to say. Like, for example, that blue-green has the worst win rate in the format, but it's basically tied with green-white. But tied with green-white is a really big indictment of an archetype because... Green-white's really bad in that uh, green-white's theme is training, which I would say was a complete flop. Uh, It's very, very hard to really get counters on creatures with training because they start so small, and that makes it difficult for them to attack. And because they start small and need to attack to grow, they're very, very, very bad at playing defensively. And because the format's so aggressive, they often need to play defensively. But I guess that whole conversation is a topic for another time. But for right now, let's just say, as bad as green-white in this format is not a place that I want to be. So I had had a few experiences with blue-green where it felt very good, and I felt like the thing that I was doing that might be exceptional is trying to maximize my creature count. So I reached out to people at 17 lands and asked about the win rate as a function of how many creatures people played in blue-green decks. And there I saw that, as I predicted, the win rates are considerably higher when you play more creatures, uh, specifically like 19 plus, maybe 18. And the win rates are really, really bad when you're as low as 13 or 14 or 15. So that informs my approach to drafting blue-green and also informs a lot of skepticism that I have surrounding the stats in blue-green. Specifically, I think that a lot of people are playing blue-green with fewer creatures And when you play with fewer creatures, the cards that ask for a high creature density don't work as well. 
And so those the, the cards that you really have to build around by playing a lot of creatures end up with stats that tell you that they're not great, which would tell you that you shouldn't build around them. While the instance that I think that you should be trying to play less actually end up with good stats because they individually perform well in these low creature decks. But the deck overall performs less well when it has more instants, which tells us that prioritizing these instants is actually a mistake, despite the fact that the instants individually have higher win rates. So this is a spot where I have a specific reason not to trust the stats overall and to do my own thing. And so I've mentioned in the past that the more I think you're drafting an archetype similarly to an aggregate drafter, the more you should listen to the stats. And the more you're doing something exceptional, the less you should listen to the stats. So for example, if you think back to like the serpentine curve decks that I was drafting in Strixhaven, that really, really, really leaned into maximizing Serpentine Curve by both playing a very low creature count and an extremely high learn lesson count where each of those cards gives you multiple um, instant sor- and sorceries to make the Serpentine Curves bigger. That meant that Serpentine Curve's win rate overall was not uh, reflective of its win rate for me. Similarly, a card like Moldgraph Millipede or Vile Spawn Spider that's particularly good in a very high creature count deck will underperform in exactly the same way. It's not going to be as good in the average deck, which means that its stats are going to be lower, which means that if you're drafting based on the stats, you won't prioritize it, which means that you'll end up with something closer to the aggregate blue-green deck that's too likely to end up with 15 or 16 creatures and then have a lower win rate than the more focused high creature count deck does. And that's not just... Uh, me saying, hey, I like that ar- this archetype. I think it's like better with more creatures. Just subjectively, that's saying the stats actually support the idea that you do win more when you're at the top of the um, distribution in terms of number of creatures played. So had a theory. It's confirmed with stats, even if the stats on the individual card level disagree with my preferences. Now, obviously, all of this subject to all the normal disclaimers about stats, and obviously when you go into stats with a certain bias or predisposition, something you expect to see, uh, sometimes you can find that and uh, tell yourself a story. But I think the story makes a lot of sense to me, and it's consistent enough with um, the numbers that I'm seeing, and I think the way I'm looking at them is reasonable, but you know, th- there's certainly room to debate that. That's kind of my disclaimer on how I'm approaching this and what I'm looking for. So if you're drafting blue-green and following my advice about how to draft blue-green, you want to shoot for 18 or more creatures, and I'm seeing 18 is like a pretty solid floor. Like I'm not, I'm much happier to play 19 than 17, happier to play 20 than 17. And what that means on an individual pick level is that I'm really not going to prioritize very many instants and sorceries. 
So I know that there are some people who very understandably would, for example, prioritize wolf strike in blue-green because you don't have a lot of removal. It's important to have answers. And uh, wolf strike is also, I think, the highest win rate common among blue and green cards in blue-green. However, the difference between wolf strike, which has like a 55.9% win rate, and say syncopate, which has a 54.1% win rate, is not that big. And that means that I basically don't, like, I want four-ish total instance, basically no sorceries. So like four-ish total instance in my deck. And I don't really care what combination of syncopate, massive might, wolf strike, scattered thoughts, thirst for discovery, those are. If they can be lunar rejection, I think lunar rejection is appreciably better than all of those other ones, such that I would prioritize lunar rejection. But all of that other stuff, I want a few of them. I, I They're each powerful cards, but I have to be really careful about my density of them. And so if I end up playing a syncopate because I didn't find a wolf strike, I don't feel like my deck is that much worse. Whereas if I take wolf strike early and then end up taking, you know, some more interaction, other syncopates and stuff later, because I'm seeing them in packs where I'm not seeing creatures and I end up with too many instants and then I can only play 16 creatures because I only drafted 16 good creatures. I'm going to feel like my deck is much worse off than it would have been if I didn't have the wolf strike and had to play slightly weaker spells. That means that, you know, if you're watching me draft or something, there will be a lot of spots where it's like, well, Wolf Strike looks like the best card here. Why aren't you taking it? And the reason is that it's fighting for a space in my deck that I want very few cards in. And I think that I'm going to see other comparable options. And so I would rather take a creature that's appreciably better than other creatures rather than a Wolf Strike that's less appreciably better than other spells. Because I think there's going to be a bigger gap in value over replacement, replacing my worst creature with a pretty good creature. So like if, for example, I get a Weaver of Blossoms and having that Weaver of Blossoms means I don't have to play a Binding Geist, there's a much bigger room for gain. There's a lot more room for gains there than there is in the room for gains in upgrading a Syncopate to a Wolf Strike. Obviously, that's not to say that I'm not going to take Wolf Strike sometimes and that I'm not going to prioritize Wolf Strike over spaces where there isn't a big upgrade. Like, I'm not saying I always take creatures over it. I just take premium creatures over it. It matters. You just need to be really, really careful. And obviously, how far into the draft you are and how many creatures you have and how many other interactive spells, like, you're, you're going to want to be pretty flexible in your uh, valuations of these cards as you start to have a pretty good sense of how your deck's shaping up and what you have room for and what you need and everything. Big picture, that's the main thing that I'm doing, thinking about when I'm drafting blue-green is thinking about managing my creature density and figuring out what those few non-creature slots are going to be. The other big picture thing that's happening when you prioritize a really high creature density over prioritizing removal and interaction and stuff 
is that you're very, very prone to end up in a board stall because you have a lot of creatures. You don't have a way to break through. If your opponent has something that's hard to attack into, you end up just kind of sitting there. And it's more likely that your opponent's not going to be able to break through because you play your own creatures that are going to be difficult to attack into, like steel-clad spirits and toxic scorpions that you're playing to buy yourself time for your kind of like scaling cards, like your Moldgraf millipedes and your vile spawn spiders. You need to give them time to grow. And so you need to find these defensive two drops that lead to a board stall um, so that your other cards can scale up. That means that obviously any card that's particularly good in a board stall is going to be good in your deck. So which cards are good in board stalls? Anything with flying or evasion in general, like the uncommon 3-3 uh, three, three unblockable foot attacks alone is probably at its best in blue-green, where just having that single threat that can um, hit them by itself over time while you kind of just gum up the board. It's a reasonable strategy to win. Another card that I've liked a lot that has pretty bad stats is Screaming Swarm, the six mana four, four flyer that you can put back on top of your deck for three mana. I've found to be a very reliable way to win long games once I've established a board stall. And then obviously just, you know, common flyers like Cruel Witness and Lantern Bearer. And then also just big creatures that make sure that you don't get like burned out and don't lose your opponent's flyers. So Bramble Worm is the best option in that space. Flourishing Hunter also works really well. And then as far as not dying to flyers, you can use stuff like Apprentice Sharpshooter or even the common scab, the 2-5 flyer that can draw a card by exiling cards from your graveyard. A lot of the creatures are kind of more interchangeable, I think. Like, as far as commons, the exceptional creatures, I think, are basically Lantern Bearer, Weaver of Blossoms, Spore Crawler, Hookhand Mariner and Cruel Witness are quite good, Moldgraf Millipede and Flourishing Hunter. And then you want to kind of round your deck out with uh, generic defensive stuff like Wretched Throng and Steelclad Spirit and Toxic Scorpion and Apprentice Sharpshooter. And I think Binding Geist is kind of at its best in this deck because you're getting the value of the Disturbed side of it for free sometimes, though you're not always eager to get it out of your graveyard, and it's going to help stabilize against flyers potentially, and just kind of, you know, you, you want a lot of creatures, <laughs> it is one, it's fine. And then more importantly, premium uncommons you're looking for, and then obviously these are the kind of cards that are going to put you in the deck. Viospawn Spider first by a lot, Bramble Worm, Infestation Expert, Lunar Rejection, Diver Scab, Dormant Grove, Reclusive Taxidermist, Screaming Swarm, Soul Cipher Board. Soul Cipher Board is another card with pretty bad stats. Again, I think you need a super high creature density for it, especially if you ever plan on putting mana into it, because you usually, if you're going to activate its ability and you're trying to flip it, you're going to look at two cards and you're the like if you see a creature in a land you're usually going to want to draw the creature which means putting the land in the graveyard which doesn't get you any closer to flipping the soul cipher board you want to maximize the number of times where you're seeing two creatures keeping the good one and getting rid of the bad one if you're putting mana into it 
But realistically, you don't ever want to actually activate your Soul Cipher board. You want Soul Cipher board to be a two mana, three, two flyer that can't block non-flyers, but lets you spend four mana to draw two discard one that has suspend as little as possible uh, that you're going to flip as soon as you can. And that's much easier to do if you have like vile spawn spiders or other cards that are milling you, or if you're just good at getting your opponent to trade their creatures with your creatures. Because, you know, going to the graveyard from anywhere counts. So you can do that with Scattered Thoughts. You can do that with the Combat Step. You can do that with Vile Spawn Spider. Or you can do it with Activation. But again, Activation is really a last resort there. As long as you are only playing Soul Cipher board when you're very good at getting creatures into the graveyard without spending mana, I think it's a pretty strong card. Especially if you're looking for mana sinks. Because there really aren't that many in the format. And... Four mana, draw two cards, discard one card. It's a very good mana sink. I read through the uncommons pretty quickly. I don't necessarily expect that everyone's familiar with the names at this point. But mostly, I mean, so touching on it again, Vile Spawn Spider is the two mana, uh, two, three reach that mills you and makes a lot of spiders. And that is just great at uh, making sure that the game goes long. And then I've... Uh, generally pretty easily been able to make six to ten one ones off of it and it's very easy to go wide and i mean to just like a, it's very easy for six to ten one ones to just kill somebody like regardless of what they have you attack in with those and whatever else you have they block some of them but they take a bunch of damage it, it's a pretty reliable finisher bramble worm is obviously the, like the reach on Brambleworm. Um, seven mana, uh, seven, six, enter the battlefield, gain five life, reach, trample, uh, and then from the, you can spend three mana and exile from your graveyard to gain five life. Uh, very, very good at keeping you alive and reasonably good at attacking and killing your opponent because of trample. Infestation Expert is a card that was very difficult for me to evaluate at first, but has played pretty well and has very good stats. This is, I guess you could say, this format's closest relative of Diagraph Horde, being a 5-mana 3-4 that gives you some bodies periodically. But uh, just like with Vile Spawn Spider, those bodies have been pretty impressive. Lunar Rejection is the 4-mana bounce spell that draws a card and only costs 2-mana to bounce a werewolf. Diver Scab is the 3-5 exploit that puts a creature on top or bottom of center's deck. I think if you have Diver Scab, you do want to pay attention to how you're enabling the exploit. This is a great way to get Lantern Bearer into your graveyard so that you can put it on something like a Millipede or a Hookhand Mariner to make a giant flyer to kill your opponent. But if I'm in the Diver Scab space, then I might want to start thinking about playing potentially um, Rural Recruit, I think is the name of the... Farmer with the pig, and then you get the 1-1 one, one, and 3-1, and you can sack the 1-1 one, one pretty effortlessly. Or maybe you end up in the Wretched Throng business. Uh, Wretched Throng, I think, is kind of at its best in this archetype, because where in blue-black, you would probably rather have a Doom Dissenter, because you don't have to spend the mana to play the 2-2 two -two after the first set part dies. With Wretched Throng... You're happy to spend the mana because you're generating more material, which means more actual cards that are creatures in your graveyard to 
power up your other stuff. If you end up in the wretched throng business, that opens the door for you to be using more of the other exploit stuff. So Diver Scab can be a card that gets you into that space where you end up prioritizing Wretched Throngs, then that lets you play maybe some of the assistants, the 3-2 that exploit to uh, scry one and draw a card. Dormant Grove is the enchantment that puts counters on your guys. And then when you, uh, you have six toughness somewhere, it becomes a 3-6 vigilance that gives all your guys vigilance. Again, this is just a card that's fantastic in a board stall because what you want when you're just hanging out is for all your creatures to be growing. And then obviously when it flips, uh, giving vigilance to all your guys in a board stall is really good. Let's you crash in and not worry about a counterattack. Reclusive Taxidermist is the two mana creature that taps for mana, and then it gets big, becomes a 4-4 if you have four creatures in your graveyard. This is exactly what you want. Helps you ramp to your bigger stuff and you were trying to get four creatures in your graveyard anyways. And it can, I've actually seen this uh, become large very rarely in this format, but blue-green is very much in the business of making it happen. And then Screaming Swarm I've talked about, Soul Cipher Board I've talked about. I think that's basically what's going on in this archetype at Common and Uncommon. Obviously at higher rarities, this format's just a lot of bombs. If you have them, if you see them, you want to take them. And if you're seeing bombs that happen to be blue and green, it's a great way to end up in blue and green. I think outside of bombs, the only card that's really pushing you into blue green by itself is Vile Spawn Spider. The rest of it's just, well, if what you're seeing is good green cards, in my experience, you basically always see good blue cards. Again, assuming you're willing to consider any of the blue cards good. I, I think... I usually try to answer the question about like, well, what gets you into this archetype? But again, with this format in particular, I think it's very much the case that what gets you into any archetype is just the really, really strong rares and uncommons that you see and everything. You know, it's important to know, oh, if you do get really good blue and green rares, what do you want your deck to look like? And then that's where we get into needing to evaluate what's going on with the commons and uncommons. I guess I should comment while I'm talking about rares, on uh, the frog, whatever its name is, the four mana three three, that whenever a card goes to your graveyard from your library, you can cast it that turn. And when it attacks, you mill three. I have had some pretty good experiences with this when I have vile spawn spiders. That engine is really strong, you, uh, especially when your deck is almost all permanents because you're minimizing your... I think it only lets you play permanents. When you're minimizing your uh, like instance and sorceries anyway, then that combination, the blue-green, uncommon, and rare together, mean that you're basically just drawing two cards a turn. You really need a combination like that because by itself, it's generally pretty hard to safely attack with a four mana three three that your opponent wants to block and kill. And that has led to my not prioritizing the four mana three three very highly. Even though I've had a few good experiences with it, I think in general it's pretty unimpressive because it's really hard to get it going. One other card I want to touch on a little bit more is Massive Might. I kind of just mentioned it in the middle of cards, uh, non-creature spells, well, instance that I'm uh, willing to play in this archetype. Didn't really go into like why or why I'm more interested in that than the web. I think just in general, when you're maximizing creatures and minimizing your spells and 
that can get a little bit clunky. I think it's pretty important to have the one mana tempo swing, but also I think that the ability to just kill somebody with specifically massive might on Moldgraf Millipede, uh, but also potentially just on a Flourishing Hunter is a very relevant little perk for the deck. You can even do the three card combo of Toxic Scorpion, your Millipede, attack, and then massive might to trample over, like, you know, only need to do one damage to any creature they block with, uh, so that your opponent can't really do anything about this if they don't have a removal spell, and they just die to uh, the trampling millipede. And I think that that's another way to try to break through this board stall eventually. So massive might's ability to play as a tempo card to uh, catch you up early by letting you double spell where you otherwise wouldn't be able to combined with its role as kind of power like deceptively powerful finisher for a single mana uh, is why it earns um, consideration as a card to play in your very limited number of uh, slots for instance though obviously again remember a lot of your blue green decks aren't going to want to play it or you're not going to want to prioritize it because you want to keep your total instant count pretty low. That's my thesis explanation lecture on blue-green. So we're going to turn it over to Twitch chat for questions. So anyone who has any outstanding questions, drop those in chat now, regardless of whether you've already mentioned them. So I know that they're still pressing and I haven't covered them already. Also, while I'm waiting for people to do that, want to thank my uh, several new patrons this week over at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Thank you very much to Michael, Lionel, Gabe, Kenny, and Recash. Really appreciate it. Also, unrelated, I want to thank everyone who stopped me to uh, say they appreciated the podcast in Vegas this weekend. Took some days off of streaming to go to the event and Got to see a lot of people have some good conversations, got some good feedback and everything about the podcast. And so thanks for reaching out and, uh, you know, touching base there. I appreciate it. First question, how's Witness the Future in blue-green? Witness the Future is three mana, uh, shuffle four cards from graveyard into its owner's library, then look at four cards, put one in your hand. The more removal and card draw and general interaction you have, the better this kind of effect is because you are more likely to get really good cards that you want to draw again into your graveyard quickly where they're useful to witness back. So like the Clear the Mind decks, Clear the Mind is a very similar card to Witness the Future, but I think Witness the Future is better. But like the old Clear the Mind decks for people who were familiar with those generally played a lot of card draw and removal. So this deck doesn't fall into the normal script for what you want in a Witness the Future deck. However, the reason that that's what you want in a Witness the Future deck normally is because you want to get your deck to the point where Witness the Future is going to appreciably increase the average power level of your draws quickly. And normally, that the thing that has to happen for that to occur is you have to make your deck small, like your library small and your graveyard not exactly large, but full of good cards. And so milling yourself is actually a reasonable approximation 
of that thing to some extent. It's still not necessarily the case that the cards that you mill are going to be particularly useful to loop, though, especially once we start talking about when you're trying to gen generate a true loop rather than just cast Witness the Future a single time. Now, you might say, wait, how are we generating a true loop with Witness the Future? We would need to cast it again. The, the only ways you can do that are either with a second Witness the Future or with the repository scab where you can use that to get the witness the future back and then use witness the future to get the scab back, especially if the scab exploits itself. Now, is that a loop that's worthwhile in blue-green? I would love to tell you yes. Uh, I, I, I find it truly delightful to win that way. The answer is that it depends, like it, that is a way to win or sometimes more importantly, avoid losing a game. If you're afraid of decking yourself, uh, that would be a good card for you. Most blue-green decks are not going to be afraid of decking themselves. However, if you had, for example, three Vile Spawn Spiders, I would start to get pretty interested because I'm pretty likely to mill through my deck pretty quickly, and I might find myself in a spot where I want to use a Vile Spawn Spider, and that might prolong rather than ending the game and I could witness it back and do it again and have this really fun make a million spiders loop. But again, I think most of the time that you're in a make a million spiders loop, you're probably doing something where you're just winning more because you could just attack your opponent and kill them with those spiders. Ultimately, I think Witness the Future ends up being a pretty bad version of Screaming Swarm most of the time in blue-green, but the just raw impulse side, the look at four cards, put one of them in your hand, does improve the more really top tier bombs you have to dig for. So you can get to the point where you might want it if you're worried about decking yourself, if you have really good bombs. For the most part, it's better in decks that have more removal and generally a different composition than you're looking to have in blue-green most of the time. So very, very, very long story short, not great. Uh, next question. Can you run multicolor similar spells similar to last set, like off-color spells, uh, Angel Fire, Ignition style cards? You can, but I don't think you should prioritize it. I think it's really bad if you are trying to use the aura whatever it's called, the aura that lets land tap for two mana of any color or give a creature plus two plus two. That would be a non-creature card that you really don't have to put in your deck. So when you're talking about trying to fix, you're primarily looking to do it with Weaver of Blossoms, Reclusive Taxidermist, and potentially Foreboding Statue. If And, of course, Evolving Wilds. If you get a lot of those, you can splash something, but if you're trying to splash, and it's worth it, and you have very few other non-creatures, you could potentially play Mulch. I don't think that Mulch is very good. I don't think that it should be like a core part of your strategy uh, as a way to like get creatures in your graveyard or anything. But when you're the right version of Blue-Green and you're using it for other reasons, it is potentially viable. So you have Mulch, the three creatures that tap for mana of any color and Evolving Wilds to try to fix your mana. 
to splash things. If you have a lot of that stuff without going too far out of your way, great. If your mana would be really bad or you would have to play like the heirloom or something to enable a splash, I would try not to. I definitely don't think this deck is anywhere near as good at fixing its mana as blue-green was in the previous format. Next question. Thoughts on playing more than 40 cards for certain builds this deck? I don't think there are very many cards that mill you enough that it's frequently going to be a good idea. And I think that there are tools that let you in without it, like Screaming Swarm and Witness the Future and just kind of expecting that a Vile Spawn Spider is going to be enough. If for some reason you are pretty confident that decking yourself is going to be an issue, like maybe you have just like a truly absurd number of Moldgraf Millipedes and because you have those, you're also playing some Mulches, something like that. Uh, maybe you have a couple of Vile Spawn Spiders or something also. I could imagine it, but I think it's going to be correct in a very, very, very small number of blue-green decks, and I think it's less likely to be correct in this format than it was in the previous format. Next question. How do you feel about the exile creatures from graveyard cards like Cobbled Lancer and Sky Scab? Those feel bad in blue-white and maybe better in blue-green. Blue-green, so obviously they're bad in blue-white because you don't want to exile your disturbed creatures and a lot of your creatures have evasions, so they're not likely to die, so it's very hard to enable those cards. Blue-green is obviously designed a little bit more to get cards in their graveyard, which makes it a little bit more likely that you're going to be able to cast Skyscab and Cobbled Lancer, but also it's going to hurt you a little bit because you're going to have cards that are counting creatures in your graveyard. So the answer is... Pay attention to how much it's going to hurt you and figure out if it's worth it. The more Vile Spawn Spiders and Moldgraf Millipedes you have, the less you want to play those cards. The more Soul Cipher boards you have, for example, as your thing that cares about creatures. Soul Cipher board wants to see a creature go to the graveyard, but it doesn't care whether it stays there or how many you actually have there. So... It's possible to end up in a spot where you don't have that many things that are counting your creatures in graveyards, and then you can use those. For the most part, uh, as far as like, well, they're bad in blue-white, so this is the place for them, question mark. I think the actual place for them is blue-black, where you don't care about your creatures in the graveyard outside of like Blood Fountain, and you do put a lot of creatures in your graveyard because of exploit. I think that it's okay to play a Sky Scab, but you're largely playing it as a flying blocker, and Cobbled Lancer is probably solid. Like, I, I don't have experience with it yet, but you're getting a pretty good rate on stabilizing. You're not losing a lot of stuff in the graveyard, but... I, I, I don't prioritize it. I, th I think it's fine filler. The problem is it's not stabilizing early and it's not really winning a game late. It's just kind of like helping you keep up by being a cheap extra spell. But I don't think that it's doing anything that's that important for you. So it's not a priority, basically. Whereas I think it would be an actual priority in blue-black, where I think the 3-3 is a lot more likely to actually matter in terms of... Um, just like what's happening in the game and it's going to be easier to cast earlier in the game and less costly later to have done it. 
Next question. How is fear of death? Uh, I think it's quite bad. If you're really, really low on interaction and really high on creatures and you are obviously valuing the mill very highly and you don't have like other mill that it's making worse, if you're generally low on two drops and afraid of getting run over, could potentially be playable. You should you should play fear of death when you genuinely have a significant fear of death. Uh, if the thing that you're going to lose to is aggressive creatures and you're afraid of that and you need something to keep you alive. It's something that you can turn to, but I don't think it's very strong overall. Next question is about if you're trying to splash, should you prioritize things that make blood because you're playing additional mana sources to fix your mana and the blood will let you get rid of extra mana sources or get rid of cards that you can't cast? Obviously, green offers no way to make blood, and blue, I believe, only offers the counterspell. So the question is, if you're splashing a little bit, should you try to also splash sources of blood, or maybe should you be more interested in splashing sources of blood? Now, obviously, if your goal for the blood is to discard cards that you can't cast, uh, there's a bit of a catch-22 there where... If you can't cast them, you don't have the bloods, you can't discard them. As far as, well, you're playing extra mana sources, so it'd be nice to get rid of those. I think there's, like, something to that, which would mean that I think, like, the blood cards are... The expensive blood blood cards in particular are reasonable to prioritize slightly more highly because you think the blood is going to be closer to a clue because you're a little bit more likely to flood out. I don't think that that's an unreasonable way to think about things, but I also don't think that that should move the needle tremendously on anything structurally about what you're doing in terms of like how much you're prioritizing, uh, any like prioritizing your fixing or looking to splash or anything like that. I think it's just like, yes, Grizzly Ritual is a little bit better to splash in a deck that's playing a lot of non-land mana sources because you might be able to cast uh, Grizzly Ritual with only four or five lands in play using some of these non-land mana sources, and then um, you'll be able to discard your fifth or sixth or seventh or all of those lands, uh, and it won't hurt you as much because you've had the extra mana sources. Um, And you're more likely to, I mean, you're, you know, as likely as anyone else to have drawn your sixth land, but maybe less likely to need it. Something to that, but uh, not. I, I, I don't weigh it very highly. The next question. Sometimes blue-black decks can generate repeated life gain, and it's possible, hypothetically, that they could gain enough life to live until the blue-green deck runs out of cards. question is, is that something that we should be worried about if we're playing blue-green? The answer is... The payoffs that you're building to hit very hard, uh, like Moldgraph Millipede takes away a lot of traveling minister activations in a single attack. I think this is a spot where my prioritization of Screaming Swarm and Vile Spawn Spider, those two cards in particular, really shines. I've definitely played games where my opponent's life total has been completely meaningless, because I'm using Screaming Swarm not just to avoid decking myself by recurring it or something, 
but actually to deck my opponent by just having a large board and attacking with a bunch of stuff and targeting them with the Screaming Swarm uh, once or twice. And if you're just milling a few cards at a time and then you attack and mill 10 of their cards, you're usually not the person who gets decked first in those spots. So the main thing that I've been doing to avoid getting decked by people who are gaining life is, will I deck them first with Screaming Swarm? If you don't have that, yes, you certainly need to pay attention to your closing speed or finishing power. Pay attention to, you know, how many of these hard-hitting creatures you play and how good you are at uh, getting them through, whether you have, like, lantern bearers or massive mites or something that's going to stop your opponent from just like chomping with them a bit until you die if you've uh, waited too long to get them big. So I guess that's uh, if you're not careful in your drafting deck composition and play, it's something that you could lose to. But structurally, decking myself is not going to be my biggest fear against white-black. My biggest fear is going to be just like losing to their flyers or losing to their card advantage if I can't get, because I, I don't have a lot of removal, if they just stick the black-white uncommon that lets them draw extra cards and they, at the end of the turn when they gain life, and a traveling minister, they could potentially uh, grind me out pretty easily. So that, that would be my bigger fear if I'm playing against white-black. Very reasonable question. Can you talk about crawling infestation? It's one of the only other recurring self-mill engines, but I don't seem to consider it an important uncommon here. Fact. I think it's just like too low impact and not a creature and slow, and I just don't think the card is very good, so I tend to ignore it and do the things that it's trying to do in other ways. I just don't think it's good enough. Next question, how often do you choose to not draw a card with Skyscab? I'm not going to pretend that I've cast Skyscab in spots where I, you know, had a choice about whether or not I wanted to draw a card all that many times. But the answer is, you know, you're going to go both ways. Most of the time you're going to draw a card, but if you already have plenty of resources and you have cards that are counting the things in the graveyard, there could easily be times when you don't do it. Uh, also very reasonable point that Hookhand Mariner is another good finisher, particularly against black-white. Often, uh, you, once you flip it to the backside that can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less, they, they might just not be able to block that, and then you can just kill them with a 6-4. If you have drafted such that you have too many non-creature spells and you're only trying to play four, how do you prioritize them? And I think I would say that uh, the top priorities are Dormant Grove and Lunar Rejection, uh, followed by Wolf Strike. After that, I think that the counter spells and card drawing are a little bit more contextual and like to be played in combination. So like I would rather have like a mix of scattered thoughts and syncopates rather than all scattered thoughts or all syncopates. And both scattered thought and syncopate are better the lower your curve is. Whereas if your curve is higher, you might weirdly enough want to be looking for something like massive might instead. 
uh, for that tempo play where you get to play two spells in a turn to try to catch up or not fall too far behind. Whereas if your curve is lower, you're more likely to empty your hand and want to refill or be able to hold up mana. So you're more likely to want to counter spell. I think it's about what I can tell you about how to prioritize those. Next question is when you do play mulch, does it replace a land? Well, it's a little bit, you know, if you replace a land, your mulch is less likely to hit, which sucks. But obviously mulch is a mana source. So I think that you should think of it as a fraction of a land, which is to say sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Also, when you're playing mulch, you're probably, you probably don't have a lot of other two drops, which is why you think it's acceptable to spend mana on mulch, which means your curve is probably a little on the high side, which means you probably don't want to be cutting lands. So the big reason that I often end up not cutting a land when I play mulch is because my curve is already high enough that I shouldn't be cutting a land, even if I'm adding the mulch. But if something else is going on and you're like, you know, it, it just all depends on whether you like want to be playing a little bit more or a little bit fewer mana sources. But I, I guess the answer is it's a fraction of a land. It literally is, you know, never giving you more than one land and has a calculable chance of giving you a land and also doesn't count as your first or second land. You need to already have two lands to play it. So it's definitely not like a full land, but it's also not nothing when it comes to considering your ability to cast spells. All right, looks like I'm all caught up. So I'm gonna assume that we're wrapping it up there. Thanks as always for tuning in everyone. This was recorded a little off schedule because I'm going to be uh, out of town for Thanksgiving when I normally record. But next week, we should be back to the normal time uh, recording on Wednesdays, as I generally hope to, but haven't really been in the swing of doing yet for Crimson Vow. Also, hoping to get to the point where I can start opening up poll about uh, what people want to hear me talk about. I'm not going to get to play a ton between now and next week because of the holiday. See how I feel about it in the coming days in terms of whether I think I need to choose the episode myself or open it to a poll. I might open it up to a poll with an option to choose myself and uh, see if people want to go that way. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Anyway, yeah, we'll be back next week. And thanks for listening. And um, Prepare for good night week. Speed.